The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. All right, we're in Leviticus chapter 11 today, starting in verse number one. And this is entitled Dietary Laws Part One. Goes through verse 23. Verse one, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales... All that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, and the bat, all flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, Those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth, these you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Anybody ever uh, wondered about that particular passage? You're going to find out about it today. Why did the Lord pick certain animals? Why did he say what he said? What is he trying to tell us? Acts chapter 9, verse 15. I'm going to add this into what I read you last week. Acts 9, 15. So everybody understands this. Who is the Lord? Anybody? Jesus. Okay, makes sense, right? Okay. So Jesus went to a person named Ananias. And he, the Lord, our Savior, Lord God Almighty, said these words. But the Lord said to him, meaning Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, speaking of Paul the apostle, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is doctrine for the church age, okay? 
I just wanted to point that out because many people like to toss Paul out the window and say, well, he's a heretic, or we don't listen to him. We go to this book and that book, but we don't take Paul. Paul was commissioned by the Lord Jesus. After that, we go to the book of Romans. Anybody remember the verse I cited last week? I said it's okay, right? 10-4. Okay. 10-4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Colossians 2, verse 14. We'll get there in a second here. Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians 2. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting. What is the handwriting? The law, the law of Moses, of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you remember the Exodus symbolism, you have the Ark of the Covenant, picturing Christ. The Ten Commandments were placed in the Ark. He embodies the law. On top was the uh, mercy seat with the two cherubim. The blood was sprinkled there where mercy is granted, the hilasterion, the propitiation, which he is called in the New Testament. He is our propitiation, our hilasterion, our kapurim from the Old Testament. That's Christ. Remember the picture of him lying in the tomb. Actually, after he was lying in the tomb, he had already resurrected. Mary looks in and she sees what? She sees where he had been laying with an angel sitting at one end and the other. He is the embodiment of the law. He is the end of the law. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was contrary to us, which was uh, against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'm going to go down. I'm going to read you verse 16 because it's pertinent to our conversation today. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Sabbath day. Festival days, they're all fulfilled in Christ. Okay, next one. Hebrews, because some people just don't like to listen to Paul. They don't want to believe the Bible in its entirety. We can go to Hebrews. Hebrews is written to who? Ah, the Hebrews, that's right. Acts um, 9, I'm sorry, uh, where am I? Hebrews, um, well, just look here. Hebrews, we'll go to verse 12. For the priesthood being 7, 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. We had a law of Moses with Aaron. Aaron is no longer, or the Aaronic priesthood is no longer in effect. The law is annulled in Christ. We have a new high priest with a new law. Verse 18 of chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Okay? Verse um, 8, 13 in that he says a new covenant, Christ is the new covenant, right? He has made the first obsolete. Done. And then finally from uh, Hebrews 10, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses. It's taken away in order to establish the second. Okay? We've read the verses from Leviticus today. We've been counseled on the purpose of the law and that it leads to Christ. He's the fulfillment of it. The law is annulled in Christ. From a health standpoint, the dietary laws of Israel are argued to make a great deal of sense. Apparently, studies have shown that those animals that are allowed under the law of Moses are good for you. This is what they claim anyway. However, the way the Jews and even many aberrant Christian sects seem to treat the foods not allowed under the law you would think that the rest of the world should be keeling over at simply smelling the aromatic waft of bacon or by having something odd for dinner like horse meat. But this isn't the case at all. From time to time, you will see a person over 100 years old who is being interviewed about their longevity. More often than not, they say something like, I eat five pieces of bacon every morning and a pork chop for dinner every night. Despite being quite an enviable thing in and of itself, it shows that the arguments by these people about food which is allowed and prohibited under the law being a health and longevity issue is simply not correct. And yet, the Lord prescribed these things specifically for his people here in Leviticus, and they will be repeated again in Deuteronomy. If these things don't add to length of life or cut life short under normal circumstances— then there must be a deeper meaning behind what is being presented, wouldn't you think? Again, 
If you look at the Gentile world who have never, ever even heard of the law of Moses, you will see that folks in any given society normally live lives about the same length as those who strictly abide by these dietary laws. In fact, the island that my wife comes from, Okinawa, has more centarians which come from it, that's people over 100 years old, than any other spot on earth. And they have a lot of pork over there. What seems to be the only difference is that those not under the law have a lot more fun stuff to eat than those under the law. <laughs> Our text verse today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and being assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Another point to consider is that these laws cannot make a person clean or unclean in and of themselves. Only the fact that they are a part of the law can they actually make a person unclean. How do we know this? Well, one thing which the people of Israel could not eat was anything which had died by itself. In verse 40, though, a verse which we're not going to get to today, but which is relevant to the topic, it says that if someone eats of such a dead animal's carcass, they're to wash their clothes and they would remain in a state of defilement until evening. This shows quite clearly that it is violating the law itself and not eating of the dead thing which causes someone to be defiled. If it was the eating of the thing which defiled a person, they would continue to be defiled after sundown. And more to the point, washing one's clothes is an external act. It has nothing to do with what went into a person's mouth. Pictures are being made here for us to see. And even more, if we really want to know if a person is defiled by certain foods, all we need to do is go to the New Testament and see what happens to a person who simply believes in faith, Jesus Christ. What is it that happens? They receive the Holy Spirit. The first such record of this was in Acts chapter 10 at the house of a man named Cornelius. He believed, he received, and his tummy was full of whatever unclean foods he had eaten. God made no distinction between him and any believing Jew. Now, why is this important? First, it tells us that these dietary laws have a meaning which is not obvious on the surface. Their meaning has to be drawn out from the text. Secondly, it is important because if you really like bacon or lobster or clams or bacon or pork chops or bacon, you are free to eat any and all of them without fear of upsetting the Lord. Because of Christ, he has accepted you. It's past tense in the Bible. It's a truth which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first is clean and unclean quadrupeds. It's verses one through eight. Verse one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, the last section, which began with the Lord making an address, was in 10 verse 8, where he spoke directly to Aaron. That was a unique occurrence in the Bible. Now, another rare occurrence arises here. This is the first recorded time in the book of Leviticus that the Lord speaks to both Moses and Aaron. The last time that they were both addressed in this manner was at the institution of the Passover, which was back in Exodus 12 verse 1, like 300 sermons ago. That was while they were still in bondage in the land of Egypt. Here, the address is made to both of them once again. This addressing of both of them will occur a few more times in Leviticus, but mostly it will be Moses alone. As Aaron is now fully ordained as the high priest, the address is being made to both. Moses is the chief lawgiver, and Aaron is the high priest who will mediate the law and carry out the enforcement of it. Along with circumcision and the Sabbath, what will be given in the following verses has especially marked the people of Israel for 3,500 years. <sighs> Disobedience to this law is normally the order of the day for them as a people. But circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and dietary laws are adhered to by a large percentage of those who claim to be Jews even to this day. Verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. The translation here is not good. Two different words are used in this verse for the word translated as animals, chaya and behemah. 
The ESV does a better job of showing us the distinction. They say, speak to the people of Israel saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. But even that is still a little lacking. It actually should say the children of Israel. It's uh, Ben Israel in Hebrew. And it also should probably say beasts instead of animals. But it's fine. It's better than the New King James Version. The Chaya, or living things, describes all categories of life. It is then broken down into subcategories. The implication, already noticeable, is that only living things are considered acceptable. Those things which have died, meaning the corpses of animals, are then excluded. This will be seen and explained later, as I said, about verse 40. But the term living things given here now makes that obvious. There will be four categories of living things, just as there were in the creation account of Genesis 1, verse 26. There it said this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The same four categories, the living things on the land, those in the water, the birds of the air, and the swarming animals will all be divided into that which is clean and that which is unclean. Having noted this, it is obvious that in the beginning all animals were declared good. There was nothing impure in and of themselves in the early Genesis account as it openly declared. Further, many of the animals which are forbidden are perfectly fine to eat. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9, no dietary law was given for any living thing on earth. Here's what it says. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. For the Gentiles of the world, these restrictions did not apply, nor do they apply now. They are a set of instructions given solely to Israel, and only during the time that the covenant remained in existence. It is a covenant which is, as this book said in the book of Hebrews, annulled in Christ, and which no longer applies This is made explicit numerous times throughout the New Testament, as I showed you. But 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, is enough to demonstrate this. He says there, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Paul notes every creature of God. It is a term which is set in direct contrast to Leviticus chapter 11, demonstrating perfectly that what was stated in this chapter was a temporary institution until the coming of Christ. Even Christ Jesus himself said that there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. We talked about that last week. It clearly shows that these ceremonial laws were given for a set reason and for a specific period of time. This should be simple and uncomplicated to understand, But unfortunately, it is beyond the grasp of countless people because they simply refuse to pick up the Bible and to read it. Denominations all over the place reinsert these dietary laws in part or in whole into their supposed New Testament theology, and they quickly depart from the Word of God in doing so. From this stepping stone, every sort of legalism one can possibly dream up becomes a standard part of their daily religious lives. Verse 3. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. The first category to be considered here is the behemah, or beasts, specifically quadrupeds. Of them, the verse gives very specific details, using several new words which are now brought into the Bible. Three of them are paras, shasa, and shesa. They are directed to the cloven nature of the hooves, specifically that they be divided. These words basically repeat the same thought to ensure that the matter is perfectly understood. It would be like saying whatever splits the hooves, having split hooves. It isn't enough to say splits the hooves because some animals do this, but they don't have fully split hooves. They are to split the hooves so that the hooves are completely split. The fourth new word is gera or cud. It is a process of... 
upchucking food from the first of several stomachs where it is chewed a second time before passing into the second stomach. The idea behind this process is that the maximum amount of nutrition is obtained from the food. It is also necessary because the foods these animals eat are difficult to digest. Go try eating some straw out at the field someday and you'll find that out. And so the process, this extra process, makes it much easier for them to digest. The requirements given here do not assign reasons as to why these animals are acceptable for food. They are merely distinguishing marks of what is considered acceptable. And so, this verse gives the specifics of what is authorized. When we get to Deuteronomy, the list of acceptable animals will actually be named. Here's what it says there. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. It is supposed by some, as I said earlier, that the meat of these animals is better for people for a variety of reasons. But that doesn't really explain why God specifies this. One can say, oh, of course, it's because the Lord wants his people to be healthy, and this is how it will come about. But that doesn't really explain anything. In fact, it would simply muddy the theological waters, wouldn't it? If that were true, then it would imply that he didn't really care about this in anyone from the time of the flood until the giving of the law. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, and so on, were not under these requirements. It would also then imply that he doesn't care as much about us now. We have no such dietary restrictions. Don't we count? Can we assume that the Lord didn't care about the health of those both before and after the time of the law? Of course not. And so there must be another reason for specifying this. It must be giving us a picture. How is the Lord transmitting these instructions to his people? Anybody? Through his word. That's absolutely right. He is transmitting them through the pages of the Bible. And what is it that we are to do with the word of God? Rightly divide it, using it to discern between good and evil. Thus, the fully divided hooves give us this picture. And the chewing of the cud gives us another picture. We are not to simply eat, swallow, and forget. Instead, we are to call the word back to mind and chew on it contemplate it and get every ounce of nourishment that we can get out of it. This is especially so because this food is very hard to digest and it must be chewed and rechewed. A cow spends about eight hours of every day chewing the cud. This plus their normal chewing of food totals approximately, get this, 40,000 jaw movements every single day. Oh, how good it would be if all of God's people spent as much time and effort chewing on his superior word, rightly dividing it and applying it to their lives in a manner which would fully nourish their spirits. Paul, writing to Timothy, gave him words to consider which reflect what is implicitly taught here in Leviticus. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing split hooves, the word of truth. And then he goes on to Timothy 2.7. Consider what I say. Chew the cud and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. We can even go to the Old Testament to understand this where he says that your word is more precious to me than my necessary food. And in the 119th Psalm, he says again and again to meditate on the word. Call it back to memory. Chew the cud. Verse 4. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. The first animal to be singled out as unacceptable is hagamal, or the camel. Gamal comes from a word which means to either wean, ripen, or deal with fully inadequately, such as in rewarding or repaying. The camel, though it chews the cud, doesn't have cloven hooves. It is then a picture of one who takes in God's word, absorbs it, getting everything out of it that he can but he doesn't rightly divide it. Many atheists know the word better than most Christians do, but they cannot discern the good from the evil, despite their time in the word. The same is true with those in cults, or those whose sole aim is to profit off of the word of God. They may know the Bible in a magnificent way, and it's fully ripened in their minds, but they divide it according to their desires, and not according to what is proper. They are camels who hold their heads up high and they're proud and haughty concerning their humped up riches. 
But in the end, they will be fully and adequately repaid in a most unhappy way. Verse 5, the rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. Hashafan, or the rock hyrax, comes from the word safan, or treasure. That's used only one time in scripture. It's in Deuteronomy 33. Here it says, they shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures, that word safan, hidden in the sand. These are timid animals that can be seen in Israel even to this day. If you ever go up to Tel Dan and see the place where Jesus uh, talked to the apostles there in Tel Dan, and you look at the cliff right there, you can see these little guys running around. Even to this day, you'll see them there. They're small, and they resemble guinea pigs. Their closest relatives are actually elephants and sea cows. In reality, they don't even chew the cud. But their mouths resemble this. And so the terminology that is used is not scientific. Rather, it's popular. Just as the Bible says that the sun rises, even though it doesn't actually rise, these animals are said to chew the cud, even though they don't really. They're unclean. This animal then pictures a person who merely pretends to dine on the word, but doesn't. And what little they do know, they do not rightly divide. They take the treasure of God and they simply hide it in the sand just as they timidly hide it from themselves. They're reflective of Paul's words in 1 Timothy. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Verse 6, the hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. Ha'arnebet, or the hare, which is referred to here, is now believed to be extinct. Like the rock hyrax, this animal doesn't actually chew the cud. It is supposed that the arnabet comes from the word ara, which is to crop and nib the produce of the ground. Thus they are destroyers of the crops, something that hares are notorious for. Paul describes such a person pictured by them in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Verse 7, And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Oh, the pig. We eventually had to get to the bacon maker, and here we are. The pet made of pork, the hog made of ham, the most maligned and yet cutest animal in the Middle East, the sweet little swine. Despite being so notorious from a kosher perspective, hachazir, or the swine, is only mentioned seven times in the Old Testament. The word comes from a root meaning to enclose, as if penned up. It divides the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. He is a person who knows the word and rightly divides it, but who doesn't meditate on it or dwell on it. He is the scholar who pours over ancient manuscripts. He is the professor who teems with sound doctrine. He is the preacher in the pulpit who gives the finest of sermons, but such are often unwilling to apply that knowledge to themselves. They have been enclosed in a world of head knowledge, but they have excluded heart knowledge. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as first having a form of godliness but denying its power and then always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 8, their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. This verse has a twofold idea behind it. The first half signifies not slaying such an animal for food. And the second is that of touching something that is died of itself in one of these categories. Both of such actions were to be considered disgusting acts. For the believer, we should apply this to ourselves in the sense that we should stay far away from anyone who is represented by these most undesirable of traits. A second reason for including this verse is found in the words, to you. It shows that they are not... They are not unclean in and of themselves, but only to Israel under the law. When the law was annulled in Christ, the wall of partition was taken away. These dietary restrictions went away with the law. What's for dinner, Ma? I'm hungry and my tummy is aching. What's for dinner, Ma? I can't wait till we eat. Will we have some burgers topped with cheese and bacon? I can't wait to taste the nummy, delicious treat. No, sonny boy, you can't have that as you know. 
I don't care if that's what for your tummy is aching. We're legalists in this house. It is true, and that is so. Here we don't eat anything topped with bacon. We are working our way to heaven despite the work of Jesus. We're on our way. This is the path we've taken. I'm sure God will look with super favor on us when we eat burgers without any bacon. Our second thought today, clean and unclean water life. It's verses 9 through 12. And yes, I know my female voice blows. I'm sorry. Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the sea or in the rivers, that you may eat. Of the things in the waters that are acceptable, they must include senapir and kaskaset, or fins and scales. The fins will only be seen in the books of Moses, and only in regard to fish. The word for scales is seen elsewhere to include describing scale armor, such as that worn by the Philistine champion Goliath. Unlike the beasts of verses 2 through 8, only the positives of sea life are given. Any non-compliant animals are simply left unnamed. As there is plenty of nummy sea life abounding in the ocean, which doesn't meet these qualifications, and as the prohibitions are only for the time during the law of Moses, not before or after, then we are being asked to determine what fins and scales must represent. Fins are used to keep a fish swimming properly and moving forward, turning, staying upright, and stopping. They guide the fish smoothly and efficiently through the water. Scales are predominantly used for protection, among other things. The symbolism is perfectly obvious. Like fins, the Word of God is intended to keep us moving in a proper and upright manner, ever towards Christ, not racing ahead of ourselves or going beyond what is written. It is to be the rule and guide of our walk, and like scales, it is intended to protect us from harm. As there are many scales, and as they vary in size, they are indicative of satisfactory good works, which the Bible exhorts us to apply to our lives in order to be well-rounded and fully protected from that which would otherwise bring harm. Verse 10, But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. Simply stated here, anything not authorized in verse 9 is forbidden. It is to be considered detestable to the Israelite. The term nefesh hachaya, or soul the living, is used as an all-inclusive phrase. Of course, this means more lobster for everyone else. And if you ever saw Seinfeld, the episode about the lobster, anybody see that one? It was very, very funny. He's Jewish. He's got some Jewish friends in a house, and they're not supposed to eat lobster, and one of them accidentally eats it, and it's the best thing they ever had, and it was great. So I want you to know, if you're not eating because of the law of Moses, put that away and have some lobster. It's really good stuff. And while I've got you here, I might as well just tell you a story about lobster. I've said this to a couple of you, and you may not know it, but one of the uses of lobster in days past up in Maine was to feed prisoners. And they got so sick of lobster that they actually revolted and said, we're not eating anymore. And so they whittled them down like two days a week for lobster. And I thought, what a crime. They had no idea what they had. Now it's, what, $24 for a piece this big? Wow. Anyway, in picture, we are to shun anything which rejects Scripture as the ruling guide of our faith or attempt to cover ourselves in any works which are not of God, fins and scales, folks. Our works are those which stem from salvation, not for salvation. Anything not matching this is to be rejected. Verse 11, they shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Again, the words to you show that such things are not unclean in and of themselves, but only to Israel under the law. With the annulment of the law in Christ, the wall of partition is broken down and the dietary restrictions went away with it. Verse 12, whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. The positive statement was made in verse 9 concerning what can be eaten. Now for the third time in three verses, the negative statement is made. Eating anything which does not have fins and scales is absolutely forbidden. Honey, I went down to the beach and caught us some fish. And while I was down there, I got some lobster too. There's plenty here, more than I could wish. Where should I put them? And what else can I do? Eck, 
Lobster! What are you nuts, my dear? That isn't clean according to the law of Moses. We're working our way to heaven, but we won't make it, I fear. If you bring home stuff like lobster, we'll get an F-. minus. If we go eating the wrong stuff, things just won't go well. It would be no different than if we were a couple of mobsters. The last thing we need is to be cast into hell because we sat down to a nummy meal of buttered-up lobsters. Our third thought today, unclean birds, verses 13 through 19. Verse 13, and these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. Now we come to the category of oof, or birds. But unlike the previous two categories, this starts with the prohibited ones first. In all, 20 types of birds, along with the bat, are named. The bat being thrown in because it's a type of flying animal, something the word oof indicates. The majority of these are those which eat other animals or carry on. It should be noted that the identification of many of these birds is highly debated. Like the stones of the high priest's breastplate, the true identification is often mere conjecture. But it is the root of the names which gives us the information that we need to determine why each is specified. The first mentioned is the nesher, or eagle. The word is derived from a root, which means to lacerate, something eagles are well known for. Paul explains in Romans and Galatians that circumcision of the body, but not true circumcision in the heart, means nothing. Instead, such people are to be cut off, pictured by the nesher, or eagle. The peres, or vulture, comes from the same word as paras, or divide, used in verse 3, concerning the splitting of the hooves. It gives the sense of the bird who is the breaker or cleaver, breaking the bones of its prey in order to obtain the marrow. This bird pictures the person who would divide the fellowship in order to gain from that division. It is what Paul warns against in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The third bird is the osnia or buzzard. This word is derived from the word os, meaning strength or might. Paul says that the strength of sin is the law. Elsewhere, he says that the strength of Christ is made perfect in weakness. This buzzard is typical of the person who relies on his own strength and merit from the law instead of in the grace coming from Christ. Verse 14, the kite and the falcon after its kind. Hada'ah, or the kite, is a bird named for its swift, majestic gliding. It pauses as if suspended in the air, looking for prey. It then engages in rapid flight where it darts swiftly through the air and swoops down on its prey. This bird would picture the person who carefully watches for those he can devour and then quickly swoops in on them before they suspect anything. It is reflective of the type of person who believers are to be especially watchful for, lest they be consumed by them. Ha'aya, or the falcon, is derived from the word e, or woe. It is a shrieking expression like, alas, along with the specific bird, it says, after its kind. It is thus any type of falcon within the species. Such a bird pictures a person who only brings misery and woe to those around him. Some falcons have been considered a delicacy in the surrounding areas of the Middle East, but they were warned against for Israel. Watch out for those who cause woe. Verse 15, every raven after its kind. The orev, or raven, along with its kind, was forbidden for Israel to eat. The name comes from the verb arav, which means to darken, as in the evening. That in turn comes from erev, or evening. Paul uses the term darken three times in his writings, each signifying a spiritual pall, which comes over a person because of their futile walk in this world. He warns against this and all after his kind. Instead, we are to be renewed in our spirits and in our minds. Verse 16, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind. Verse 16 introduces four more birds, beginning with bat-ha-ya'ana, translated here as the ostrich. However, the words literally mean in Hebrew, daughter of vociferation, because of the clamorous noise that they make. This is obviously a picture of those who are boastful and who want to draw attention to themselves, hoping everyone will hear them. Such are described in Romans 1, as are those of the next category. The tachmas, or short-eared owl, comes from the word hamas, which indicates treating violently, being violent, and the like. 
Romans 1 gives a long list of perverse people in the world, among whom are the backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, and so on. The third category in this verse is ha-shachaf, or the seagull. This comes from an unused root, meaning to peel, and thus to emaciate. The bird pictures those who are caught up in asceticism. Paul speaks of such people in Colossians chapter 2, who command others to not eat certain foods, and he also mentions them in 1 Timothy 4, where he notes those who command others to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The final bird of this verse is hanets, or the hawk. This comes from a word which means to sparkle or glare. Thus it signifies a bird which has swift, flashing speed. Paul, citing Isaiah, speaks in Romans chapter 3 of those who are swift to shed blood. These are symbolically warned against all the way back here in Leviticus, and it notes of them after their kind. All who have a like attitude as this are to be noted and kept away from. Verse 17, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl. The first of the three in this verse is hakos, or the little owl. The identification of this bird is highly debated. But the word kos is the Hebrew word for cup. Some see this as an owl because it looks like a cup when sitting. Some say it is because of its cup-like eyes. And some say that it is instead a pelican because of its cup-like bill. What matters is not the bird, but what it pictures. Kos comes from kis, which is a bag for money, like a purse. It is a person who is greedy to be filled with money. Paul warns against such an attitude several times, such as in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Next is Hashalak, or the fisher owl. The name comes from a root which means to cast down. And so it is a bird which comes down upon its prey, diving into the water to draw it out. As the word is equated with water, this is a person who attacks those who are immersed in the word and attempt to pull them out of it, destroying their faith. Paul speaks of exactly such in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed. Then they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The third in this verse is Ha Yanshuf, or the screech owl. This comes from Neshef, meaning twilight or dawning. But it comes from nashaf, meaning to blow. The reason is that the winds begin to move and prevail in the evening. Thus, this bird pictures those who are unsound in their doctrine. Paul says of them that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What is clear here is that knowingly, or unknowingly, the writers of the New Testament described people which perfectly fit every category of bird or beast that we are looking at, and we're told to stay away from them. This is true with the next verse as well. Verse 18, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture. Hatin shemet, or the white owl, is next. This comes from a root which means to pant, as in a hard breather, and hence to blow away or destroy. Paul speaks numerous times of those who would come in to destroy the faith of others. And certainly such people do it with such zeal that they pant heavily as they carry out their work. Next is Hakaat or the jackdaw. This is from the word ko or vomit. Peter speaks of those who return to their vomit like dogs because they return to the pollution from which they had come, becoming entangled in it once again. This is the symbolism of such a bird. The third is Haracham, or the carrion vulture. This bird is very affectionate towards its young, hence the name Racham, which is derived from mercy, or to be compassionate. The amazing parallel of this to the New Testament is Paul's citing of the Lord from Exodus in the book of Romans, where he cites the same word. It's used Racham in this verse from Exodus. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. He then goes on to cite Hosea, saying, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. The very people who are not God's people are those who are given compassion. 
and the people who were given the warning to not eat this type of bird signifying compassion were to be denied it. It is a sad type of irony which is found in his word. Stay away from Judaizers, those who would reinsert the law, including dietary law. Verse 19, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe and the bat. These are the last three birds of the list. The first is ha or the stork. This comes from the word chasid or godly one. However, being an adjective, it can be applied to an ungodly person when spoken in the negative, such as in Psalm 43, verse 1. Obviously, such as this are described in the New Testament. Here's one example. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. Next is ha-anafa, or the heron. This comes from a root meaning to be angry or enraged because of its irritable disposition. It is an attribute which Paul warns against in both Ephesians 4, verse 31, and Colossians 3, verse 8. And finally, on the bird list is ha-dukifat, or the hupo. The name is so obscure that there is little agreement on what it is to be derived from. What is most probable is that it comes from the word duk, meaning to beat. Thus, it is a picture of a brawler, something warned against by Paul in Ephesians 4.31. After the birds, the final living flyer to be mentioned is ha-atalef, or the bat. This comes from the word alaf, signifying darkness. It is creatures which live for the night. Paul shows us what the bat then symbolizes. He says, you are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. I went out hunting, my dear, and I shot us up a bird. Can't wait till we sit down and eat this baby up. I shot it just down the road, maybe the gun you heard, and I said, Rover after it. He's an awful good pup. Honey, we can't eat this thing. It's a raven, don't you know? Those are forbidden under the law. Now toss it out the door. But my dear, Christ is the end of the law. It was an old long ago, and it ain't coming back. No, never, evermore. We are free in Christ from the bondage of the law, and so tonight we're having bacon, lobster, and raven. We need to stand fast on Christ alone and not withdraw, and in him we can eat whatever our tummies are a-craven. Our fourth thought today, unclean and clean creeping things. Verses 20 through 23. Verse 20, all flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. The final four verses of today deal with creeping things. The word translated as creep simply means to go, but it is correctly translated here as creep. In particular, here are insects that creep on all fours. This, however, doesn't refer to the exact number of feet but rather it is a metaphor which denotes an insect that walks with its body in a horizontal position or near the ground in contradistinction to two-legged birds of the previous verse. Creeping things were to be rejected for several obvious reasons, especially because of how filthy they are. But again, in picture, they represent the really low and filthy breed of humans Paul warns against. 2 Timothy 3 verse 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Verse 21, Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. There was, however, a class of creeping insect that was acceptable to be eaten. They are specifically identified as those with jointed legs above their feet by which they can leap. The word leap here is a new word to scripture, natar. It will be used just eight times and it gives the sense of leaping or letting loose. In the Psalms, it speaks of when setting prisoners free. And in Isaiah, it speaks of undoing the bands of a yoke in order to let the oppressed go free. Their jointed legs were capable of making them leap about freely like this. One can see the grace of Christ all over the intent of this word. Verse 22, these you may eat the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. The arbe, or locust, is first mentioned. 
This comes from the word rava, which means to bring in abundance or to multiply. The next is ha-saleam, or the destroying locusts. This comes from selah, or rock. The name gives a sense of crushing, as with a rock, and thus it is a destructive eater. This is the only time that it's seen in the Bible. After this is ha-hargol, or the cricket. It comes from a root which means to be afraid, and thus it means to leap suddenly as one would when afraid. Like the previous insect, this is the only time that it's mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And finally is the hagav, or grasshopper. This insect is seen just five times in the Bible. It is believed that it is named from an Arabic word which means to veil, because when they fly, it is often in swarms which are so large that they actually block out the sun. The reason for allowing these four types of insects to be eaten is based on the word natar, or leap, from the previous verse. It forms a picture of the multitudes being set free from bondage, and thus it pictures the work of Christ freeing us from the law's bondage. Woohoo! Jump up and shout hallelujah, right? <laughs> verse 23, but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Apart from those insects specifically authorized by name, no other such flying insect which had four legs was to be eaten. It was to be considered as detestable to the people of Israel. It should be noted that eating of locusts is actually mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. There we see John wearing a garment made from an animal unclean to eat, a camel bound with a belt from a clean animal and eating locusts and wild honey. Locusts are an acceptable food from an otherwise unacceptable category of creatures and honey is an acceptable food which is derived from an unacceptable creature. In this almost confusing display of what is acceptable under the law, John was the herald of Christ, proclaiming that his kingdom was at hand and that the time when the multitudes would be set free from bondage. Things which were once considered defiled would be purified by Christ, and those people who thought they were pure would be shown as defiled. There's an amazing flow of thought in these 23 verses concerning what is clean and what is unclean under the law and what these things actually picture in regards to the New Testament. As I said to John and Kathy last night, this sermon here took more study than maybe any I've done in years. I had to go through every single one of these words, every root of these words, and then I had to think, where is the New Testament pattern in this? I don't know anybody that's ever done this from this perspective before, but I can tell you it is correct. The Lord is showing us who to stay away from, and he's telling us that we are freed from this bondage in Christ. The root meanings of these words, of each of them, each of them has in fact formed one spiritual picture after another of what it means to be in Christ the one who embodies this law which Israel lived under. Each word and each detail has been given by God to reveal him, his work, or his expectations for those in him. And in him is the fulfillment of what has been presented. It will continue to be presented throughout all of the law and the prophets. And looking for him, there he will be found. In the end, it is all about him. I'll tell you right now, Sergio was reading the Bible yesterday about Saul and his sons, and he came up with a marvelous picture of Christ and his work. Absolutely astonishing. I can't wait until we get to that passage. It's going to be in about 27 more years. We're going to get to it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you. Marvelous. I would ask you today that if you have never taken the time to call on Jesus to save you, or if you are still trying to put yourself under the constraints of this fulfilled law, you should make the call out to him. Be saved by him and leave works behind you which cannot get you one step closer to God. If you don't eat certain foods because you don't like them or because it's culturally acceptable, that is fine. But if you don't eat certain foods because the law of Moses forbids it, you have fallen from grace. You are not pleasing to God. As Paul says, you are a debtor to the entire law and you will be condemned on that great day. Call on Christ, trust in Christ alone, and rest in Christ. In this, you will be completely and perfectly pleasing to him. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. We have earned death because we have sin in our lives. The Bible goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a gift. You can earn it. 
I said to somebody a day ago or a couple days ago, you know, this is a Rolex watch. It's worth $10 million in here. I'll give it to you for a dollar. Is it a gift? No, I got a buck out of it. But if I say here, take this watch, and all he has to do is just hold out his hand and receive it. That is a gift. Anything else is not a gift. Not eating certain foods because you want to make God happy is not pleasing to God. He has offered you the gift in his son who fulfilled all of this. Go have lobster, my friend, and have lobster wrapped in bacon, okay? Do it. Our closing verse today, let me finish my thought on salvation. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One more thing. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't forget that part, okay? Call on the name of the Lord. God, I'm a sinner. I've offended you in a million ways. I've tried to work my way to heaven, like my wife who keeps telling me we can't have any bacon, and I'm giving up on that. We're going to do things your way this time, okay? Do that. Our closing verse now is 2 Timothy 3. It's verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructing in righteousness. I bet you we had 45 or 50 examples of that right here today, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, not for salvation, for every good work, okay? Next week is Leviticus 11. It's verses 24 through 47. Nummy treats for me and you. It's entitled Dietary Laws. Part two. two. That'll be our 17th Leviticus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today, which I'm going to read in my female voice, which is 23 verses long. I'm kidding. It's it's what's for dinner. Okay? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, without a haw or a hem, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, those tasty and sweet. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud that you may eat, and if you wish, you can add in a tasty spud. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud, or those that have cloven hooves, not even with sauce, each is to you to be a dud. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you too. The hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. No bacon for you, boo-hoo. The flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. No rabbit stew or pork chops or such. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales. Whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. This does not include snails. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water, you must bid adieu. Or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you, yes, to the whole nation. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water which does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. This includes lobsters, clams, and whales. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination, as I have outlined, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and the falcon after its kind. Every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture as defined. The stork and the heron after its kind, the hoopoe and the bat, please bear in mind. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creep on all fours will be okay in some stew. Yes, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth, those with some sauce can be tasty and sweet. These you may eat the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind too, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. These are okay for you. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. They shall not be for you a tasty treat. Lord God, thank you for having done what we could not do. You fulfilled the law, and now it is done for us. It is over, annulled, and through. 
thank you, O God, for the work of our Lord Jesus. And so, through him to you, we give all of our praise, and we thank you for our freedoms in Christ, our matchless King. We shall rest in him and his finished work for all of our days. And to you, O God, we shall lift our voices and sing. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for freeing us from the constraints of the law, which was something impossible for the people of Israel to meet. How much more for the whole world at large. There, you talked to the Pharisees about straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They went from trying to get rid of one tiny defiled thing to swallowing a huge defiled thing. It's just one of those things that is so obvious when you stand back and look at it. And Lord, I would pray for any person that has clicked onto this sermon that is still stewing right now, chewing their teeth and saying he's going to heck because he's telling people it's okay to eat pork to simply open their minds to the truth of your word, that these things were only types and shadows to show us a spiritual truth and that we are not under this law. We are not bound to this law and that you have freed us from it. How great and glorious you are for that, O Lord. And Lord, we certainly pray for all of the people that are having their trials and struggles and troubles in their life right now that we mentioned earlier. We pray for Brother Bruce, who was here earlier, that he will meet his uh, uh, goal in getting to uh, Thailand for his conference in a few months. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to have have him here. He seems like a most pleasant gentleman, and we pray for him and his ministry. And I'd like to pray for the lady down the road at Ooh La La again. We're hoping that she's okay and that she'll be back in business soon. But your will be done in all of their lives. As long as she gets to know you, that's the main thing, Lord. We thank you for every good thing you've done for us. We praise you for the chance to come to your table and to participate in what it signifies for us. And we pray for the day that it is fulfilled when he, our Lord Jesus, comes to us. May that day be soon. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.